I'm Scott. I'm Bill. And, and we're, we're the, the Trade, trade Guys. guys. On this week's episode of Trade Guys, we'll discuss Canada's digital services tax and the direction of APEP. All that and more on Trade Guys. Good afternoon, Trade Guys. Good to see you both again. We're going to have a Western Hemisphere Standard episode today starting with a trade fight, or rather a potential trade fight, with our northern neighbor, Senators Ron Wyden and Mike Crapo, both from the Committee on Finance, wrote a letter to the U.S. Trade Representative, which urges the agency to vow retaliation if Canada moves forward with its proposed digital services tax. Let's unpack this in a bit. Trade guys, can you tell us about the digital services tax? What does it consist of? Well, yes, I can attempt. This is not that simple. And I have to say, this is sort of a mystery episode for me. Both of our topics, which are Western Hemisphere topics, I'm just baffled. I'm baffled about why the Canadians are doing what they're doing, because it's very un-Canadian of them to do this, but which is to impose a tax, even though everybody else that is engaged in this game has agreed to postpone it for a while. The context here, many listeners know, is related to OECD efforts to the Organization for Economic Cooperation and Development efforts to develop a, a regime, if you will, to deal with international tax issues. Uh, it is that the G7 or the G20, probably both, TASI, uh OECD with doing this, and it's an effort to deal with the effort, the proposals by a number of com- countries mostly in Europe, to uh, tax digital services. And what that would mean is if you are a platform like Meta or Google and are providing digital services, you're subject to the tax. But it also means that service providers that that sell stuff, like Amazon, for example, would also be subject to tax. And most of the companies that would be primary targets in all these bills are American companies. It's a little bit like the EU digital trade regulations, the EU's Digital Marketing Act, which targets, I think, with one exception, American companies. Um, The United States has not been positive about all of this because uh, basically our guys are the victims. And we have been participating for a, a number of years in an effort by the OECD to develop a common approach to international taxation on, on two frauds, uh, and they're called pillars, pillar one and pillar two. Pillar one, which relates to the digital issue, is an effort to set up rules for allocating taxable income or profit earnings in the country in which it's earned. Because right now, one of the complaints, and one of the, the complaints about the countries that are pursuing digital uh, services taxes are that the companies provide services in their country, the country, companies operate in their country, but they're not subject to taxation in their country. They're American corporations or they're Chinese corporations or whatever, and they are taxed in their headquartered country, country of their domicile, but are not necessarily taxed in the countries where they provide services, 
if they don't have a physical presence there. And for a lot of countries, this is foregone revenue. You know, this is a chance to uh, obtain revenue that otherwise would be ending up either not being paid to anybody or would be paid to the home country. So what happened was uh, countries all got together and asked the OEC to do this. Pillar one is basically that kind of revenue allocation. Pillar two, which you probably heard more about recently, is designed to set up a corporate minimum tax that would be applied to everybody that's participated in this. And it's uh, right now, it is tentatively set at 15%. And it creates a mechanism whereby if you are not paying the minimum, then countries where you operate in which you are not paying the minimum are able to basically top you up and to assess more tax to get you 15%. This is really complicated, as you might imagine, and it's been a fraught negotiation. And one of the consequences of it is that all this has taken a lot longer than anybody thought. The deal that was cut initially was countries that had enacted digital services taxes or had proposed them agreed not to go ahead with them as long as the OECD was going to continue to work on pillar one and pillar two. And the anticipation when they agreed on that was that all of this would be done and the OECD principles would go into effect in 2024. That doesn't look like it's going to happen. In fact, uh, earlier this uh, earlier this year, this summer, the, the participating countries, of which there are 140, got together and agreed to postpone uh, the implementation of pillar, uh, either pillar, I guess, for another year. So nothing's going to go into effect at least, you know, mid-2024 at the earliest, most likely 2025 or later. Most of the countries that have pursued the digital services tax uh, are continuing to defer imposing, actually imposing the tax and make people pay pending what the OECD is doing. Of the 140, 138 countries agreed to delay. Canada did not. Canada intends to go ahead with enacting this digital services tax. It has not enacted it yet. They intend to enact it this year. They intend to, it would be a 3% tax, and they intend to apply it retroactively back to 2022. So companies that are liable, they would be companies that have a substantial, I think, 750 million euro annual revenue, but also uh, are providing at least 20 million Canadian dollars worth of digital services, as of next year, would have to pay taxes on that income retroactive two additional years above and beyond 2024. This has got a lot of people very upset because it flies in the face of what the other 138 countries are doing. And since the United States is going to be, the United States companies are going to be the biggest victims, the United States is particularly upset about it, hence the letter that Thibault referred to from the senators. The U.S. government has been, uh, I think, equally clear in telling the Canadians that uh, we don't think they should do this. If they act unilaterally, most people believe it would violate their WTO obligations. It would also violate their USMCA obligations. I'm baffled why they want to go ahead. Usually, Canadians are multilateralists and are leading the way to broad international cooperation on a variety of issues. And this is one thing area where they seem determined to go it alone and fly in the face of what everybody else is doing. And I've got no clue why. Yeah, I have to agree with you, Bill, because Canada is, because it's a trading nation and it's sort of a middle power, let's say. It's not 
tiny by any means. It's advanced and it's uh, it's got a big economy, but not big enough to set the rules on its own. And so because of that, Canada has always been in the role, like say Australia or New Zealand or Singapore, they've been in the role of using the rules to their advantage, but being devoted to the rules. The rules they see as in their benefit, so they tend to follow them. I'm not sure what got into them, although I was reminded when I looked at the, the number of companies in uh, in the United States versus Canada who would be covered by the tax, I thought of Chairman Russell Long and his famous position on uh, tax policy, which is, don't tax me, don't tax thee, tax the feller behind that tree. So if you can tax somebody who's not you or the or, or your friend, then that's a, that's a good tax policy for a lot of pragmatic political reasons. Now, politicians, of course, really don't like to tax their constituents. So they love it when they can find an opportunity to tax somebody who's not one of their voters, okay, and who can't vote them out. And that happens all the time. It's not only the Canada and it's not only the digital services tax. I was recently, now since I live in North Carolina, when I visit D.C., I have to stay in a hotel. I noticed that Washington, D.C., our nation's capital, has a sales tax of 6% of the purchase price of any good or service. But the hotel room occupancy tax is not 6%, but 16%, reflecting the fact that politicians would, if they jacked up taxes to 16% on every purchase for voters, they'd soon be unemployed politicians. But people who stay in hotels tend not to vote in their constituencies. So they vote someplace else. So let's tax them. So that's what this looks like. The second point I'd make is it's odd. Uh, now, keep in mind that the United States and Canada have had a tax treaty for a very long time. Most recent update was, I think, ratified by the Senate in 1984. But we've had a tax treaty since the 40s with Canada because of the amount of commerce and the, and the amount of dual income that's generated by people who, who work in North America. But that's an income tax treaty. And this is a tax on sales or, or revenue. Let's see, 3% of revenue is a lot bigger number than 3% of net income for almost every company that I'm aware of. That it has to be mathematically because you have things like cost of goods sold. So, but in any case, Microsoft is an example, has revenues from the past year, that's net sales of $211 billion, but net income of $72 billion. So 3% of $211 billion is $6.5 billion. 3% of $72 billion is $2.1 billion. Big difference in the tax bite. And in other words, you can tax companies that have no earnings. Because they, everyone, has, everyone has revenue, everyone has sales. It's an odd tax from that standpoint as well. I think this probably calls for a 301 investigation. If I were to recommend something to the administration to address the senator's complaints, there have been a lot of them since the Trade Act of 1974. I noted 11 with Canada. So they're used to it. They know that that's a unilateral investigation on any unfair act. So it doesn't matter that it's tax policy. And uh, of the 11, the first, uh, it was the second investigation in, in the history of 301 investigations was Canadian egg quotas. Uh, so after eggs, we moved on to uh, to border broadcasting, rail cars, front-end loaders, fish, two softwood lumber, uh, 301 investigations in 86 and 91. There was an investigation on beer, investigation on cable TV, the famous country music television investigation, on periodicals and on dairy. Uh, so th that's probably the tool of choice here. And let's find out what's going on. As, as Bill pointed out at the outset, this isn't really particularly Canadian behavior. I guess we'll have to follow what happens after this. Uh, guys, let's switch gears and talk about a broader America's trade topic. And I'm talking, of course, about the 
America's Partnership for Economic Prosperity, or APEP. Let's start our discussion with another letter that Senator Tim Kaine recently sent to the Biden administration, urging them to strengthen the partnership. So, Bill and Scott, what is Senator Kaine's recent letter to USTR suggesting about APEP? Well, he's encouraging that they get on with things more than anything else, you know, and he sees this as an opportunity to uh, use trade policy and economic integration as a way to advance the living conditions and, and well-being of people in the hemisphere. I think he's generally right about that, and this is something that has been a long-held view in the U.S. Go back and look at, the, since we started doing free trade agreements, which was the first one was with Israel in the 80s, we have 20 of them. The 20, there are 20 partner countries of our uh, that have a free trade, uh, or a, what we call a free trade agreement, with the United States. Of the 20, 11 are in Latin America, 12 if you include Canada. So 12 in the Western Hemisphere, from Mexico south, there are 11 of 20. So there are a lot of free trade agreements already operating, they've been negotiated, they have uh, preferential tariffs both ways. I worked on a lot of these agreements, in uh, most of them in the George W. Bush administration, so Bush 43. And I must say that, first of all, the administration at that time put tremendous political capital in making these happen. None of them were easy. We had very close votes, both on the, uh, the negotiating authority itself, and then the agreements that uh, took a long time to complete and then to finish uh, finish their ratification and implementation. But of all these, and all these agreements are of very high quality, and the United States uh, worked very hard to put them together. There were some real innovations that were directly addressed some of the things that Senator Kane and the administration have talked about. For instance, uh, the rule of origin in the Central American Free Trade Agreement is a single rule of origin instead of a bunch of bilateral rules of origin. That was the United States' idea. Regina Vargo was then the chief negotiator, the deputy or the assistant U.S. trade representative for the Western Hemisphere. And in doing so, she built, she built the groundwork for uh, sort of supply chain integration that never really happened in the Central America republics. So there are a lot of pieces put in place. Most of us who worked on them were very proud of the quality of those agreements and the standards that that they, they represented, and fought hard in Congress to get them uh, get them adopted. And here we are, basically twenty years later, and wondering I'm wondering what really happened. Were these worth the effort? Are things really better? And so it's one of those moments where I thought we were doing the right thing. I had enough. I certainly was on the side that I thought was right, which was in that case, the administration side and the side of, of opening markets and, and uh, on a rules basis and providing uh, providing reciprocal market access. Now I look at the conditions in Latin America and it's uneven enough that I'm not sure what works and what doesn't. So if Senator Kane or anybody or the administration has an idea on what to do and how to make that better, that's great. I do think though, we're calling those negotiations the U.S. reluctance today to negotiate market access is going to be a real problem. I mean, the United States worked very hard in those days, so the, the, the George W. Bush administration, to achieve a market access offer that got real reforms from the partner economies. Without having access the way that the United States provided it, or without even talking about market access, I have no idea how we're going to get into these economies to make the improvements we'd like them to make. So unless we get serious about that, I mean, I, I would just, I think we're ignoring the facts on market access. We've talked about that a number of times, but 
I don't see how this goes anywhere without the United States making a serious offer to open its markets in return for the kinds of integration, ultimately, but reform in the short term that they want. Well, Senator Kane's letter also reflects on the fact that he's he's learned, I guess it's been told, that it's not going to be an agreement anymore. It's going to be a forum, which makes it even less than what Scott was just lamenting, as with the Canadian case. I'm just baffled at what's going on here. I think part of the issue, and, and I don't, don't understand this decision either, part of the issue is that APEP is being uh, led by the State Department. And you would think that since it's supposed to be a trade negotiation, it would be USTR. Uh, but it's not USTR. It's state. And this is not something normally that they do. And I think people who've been watching this for the last couple of years realize, one, there's not a lot to watch because there's been very little going on. There have been a couple of meetings. IPEF, the Indo-Pacific Economic Framework, is rolling along. I mean, we can argue about the likelihood of it finishing by uh, APEC next month, and it doesn't look like it'll entirely finish, but it does look like they'll make some additional progress. But APEP, which has not been in existence quite as long, has uh, virtually nothing to show for it. And now the, the response to having nothing to show for it is that we're going to lower the bar even more than it was before and ask for less. So instead of looking for an agreement, we are now looking for a forum in which those countries can get together and talk about these various issues. It has pillars, like IPEF, and the pillars are slightly different, but for the most part, they're they're similar to the, the IPEF pillars, so I won't, I won't repeat them here. But there's been, I think, no measurable progress on any of them, and it's just kind of a mystery of what's what's happening to this, and, and to me, it's, it's an opportunity missed. I mean, the United States has been missing opportunities in Latin America for, you know, since the Alliance for Progress in, in the early 60s. We have never really figured out a way to develop a, a relationship in the hemisphere. The closest we came was in the Clinton administration when we tried to uh, launch the uh, trade agreement for, on the, for the Americas, which ended up, as I recall at the time, being torpedoed by the Brazilians um, who didn't want to uh, didn't want to go forward. So nothing happened, but that was, that was the high point of nothing happening. We now seem to be at a, a lower point of nothing happening where we're not even trying to accomplish very much. You know, and I worry about that, uh, partly because, uh, you know, the, the news is full of the substantial inroads the Chinese have been making in the continent, mostly in South America as part of their Belt and Road Initiative. And I think it's not entirely been successful for them. And I think a number of the Latin American countries that have experienced, the, you know, Chinese projects and investment have discovered that they're not all that they're promised to be. But it still represents for the United States, I think, an opportunity missed. And I just, I, I had never expected them to focus on market access because we can't get them to focus on market access in Asia, where the discussion on that has been much more pointed. But now we can't even get, seem to be able to get them to come to an agreement. So I think this is one that's going to, you know, fade off into the sunset. And I'm sad about that. Yes, it's a good time for diplomacy, but we don't seem to be doing much of that. So, uh, you know, I don't know who's consulting with these economies about what they'd like to do and how they see the United States as a partner. We're often often giving lectures in these situations, but we're not even offering any any concessions on our own part, any access to things, job creating opportunities. And there are opportunities to be found here because of uh, the process of de-risking that's going on that we've talked about in the past. As companies think about their supply chains and vulnerabilities in their supply chains. 
one of their objectives, and not this is not new for probably 10 years, has been to think about shortening their supply chains. And certainly uh, during COVID, when we had a lot of supply chain problems, one of which was, you know, enormous backlogs of ocean shipping uh, on the West Coast in particular, Latin America is sort of nearshoring. Mexico is right next door. You do trucks, you don't have to do ships. But the rest of the continent is not very far away compared to Asia. And also, for the most part, it can ship to Gulf ports or Atlantic Coast ports, which have not historically been as crowded as, you know, LA and Long Beach and, and the West Coast ports. So as companies, I think, think about nearshoring and think about adjusting their supply chains and think about doing business not only in Mexico, which is the obvious place, but Central America and Colombia, where we have a free trade agreement, you know, or Peru, where we have a free trade agreement, or Chile, where we have a free trade agreement. Um, I think they would welcome uh, more aggressive efforts by the United States uh, to try to, you know, cement better economic relations and provide a little more incentives for closer cooperation, because I think the you know, the American companies are looking for that. Uh, so another missed opportunity. And given Senator Kane's letter to the Biden administration, would you say that sentiment is also echoed in Congress? It seems to be. Uh, you, uh, Senator uh, uh, Cassidy has introduced legislation for a, an America's trade agreement, and there's been an increasing amount of conversation about that. And not only in the United States, the President of Costa Rica has a number of times said they're very interested in joining USMCA, which I think is an interesting idea. You know, I, and it's I think some of the senators are putting on the table the idea we've got we've got a functioning trade agreement in USMCA. It's got all the things that we would like to have. Maybe we should think about enlarging it, particularly enlarging it in, in the hemisphere. That that would probably be win-win. The administration seems to have displayed no interest in that so far. I would note that the original uh, North American Free Trade Agreement, if you look at the concluding uh, conditions, the last chapter in the agreement as it was signed, had an accession clause. It was possible to accede to the NAFTA. I think they changed that, and then instead they have a withdrawal clause in the new USMCA, but at least the, the idea has been there. And there seems to be interest in it. There's interest in it. Not everybody in Latin America is interested in it. I mean, the Costa Ricans are, you know, if, if they were actually to get in, I think that would stimulate requests from some other countries. But, you know, it, it's, it's just, you know, also, I think a sign in Congress of growing frustration with the, the administration's trade policy on multiple fronts, what you see, mostly Republicans, but not entirely, is saying is basically what I said a few minutes ago, which is missed opportunities. And the third thing that baffles me, this is the, the, the episode of bafflement, is why we don't seem to care about exports anymore. And I had a very long conversation a couple of weeks ago with someone who served in the Biden administration uh, for a good while, and all this was was part of his portfolio. And and I said, why why don't you care about exports? Or why didn't you care about exports? And uh, he didn't know. I mean, nobody seems to be able to answer the question. But exports are a win-win. You know, they reduce our trade deficit. They promote jobs. They promote growth. They make money for companies. They help workers. And we, multiple administrations of both parties have had well-developed export promotion campaigns, trade missions. Secretary of Commerce commandeering one of those great planes that says United States of America on it in big letters and landing someplace with a collection of CEOs and making a bunch of deals. I mean, 
I went on one of those when I was in the government with uh, Secretary Daly who went to China. And, you know, the reality is that the deals are all made in advance. The negotiations are in advance. But the companies and the countries, they want to have a, they want to tie a ribbon on it and have a closing ceremony of some sort. And, you know, having the uh, American cabinet official show up in a big plane and cutting ribbons and signing agreements, that's a big deal. And, I mean, it's not always a happy deal. I recall this is how Secretary Brown died, uh, leading the trade mission, and his plane crashed in, outside of Dubrovnik in Croatia. But we don't seem to be doing much of that anymore. And it's kind of, you know, the Secretary arriving on a trade mission is kind of an action-forcing event. You know, negotiations that have dragged on for months. Suddenly, there's an incentive. Now, let's finish this off. Let's get signatures. Let's, you know, do a video and move on. And we just don't seem to be focused on any of that. And I think members of Congress are picking up on this as missed opportunities, particularly those who represent agricultural areas where there's uh, a lot of interest in exporting because that's where, you know, we used to, we used to have an agriculture surplus. And for the last couple of years, we have not. So, you know, why not is an interesting question. But you can be sure in our farm states, which are many more than you think, uh, there's an awful lot of interest, increased exports, and we just don't seem to be doing much about that. Yes, when it comes to ag trade, I think uh, Bob Strauss, a former U.S. trade representative, summed it up best. Every state has two senators and at least two cows. And yes, in the case, even in the case, Pennsylvania, believe it or not, uh, where I worked for a long time uh, for Senator Hines, is actually a major ag agricultural state. Sure it is. And uh, my father-in-law was a farmer, and uh, he had cows. He didn't have cows. He had steers. He's a cattle farmer. But uh, he had more than two. Most farmers do. That's right. Some of the great lad, some of the best lad in this country is in Lancaster County and uh, York County and in sort of southeastern Pennsylvania there, Amish territory. That's right. If you include forestry, which is part of agricultural trade, you have almost every state is a powerhouse. And uh, on production, production agriculture, we're still a major exporter. We import a lot of processed food products, including wines and spirits, which are uh, which are categorized as in the agriculture tables. But uh, yeah, we're, it's a powerhouse opportunity uh, to to, fo to focus on American agricultural exports. Nobody seems to care, and so we'll we'll wait to find somebody who does and talk about them on the trade guys' favor. If we find them, we'll have them as a guest. Yes. Well, guys, thanks as always for the overview and mildly gloomy ending. But have a good rest of your week. I'll see you next time. Thank you. Thank you.